Welcome to Dreamers to Leaders, Keeping It Real with Melody podcast. Melody is a born dreamer who started from being a flight attendant and worked her way up into now a tech fashion trendsetter, thought leader, and seasoned entrepreneur in multiple successful ventures. This podcast is for the awakened dreamer. Industry icons will share their humble beginnings up to the leaders they are today. Let's all learn and be inspired. Together, we can all prosper. Hello, and welcome to the Dreamers to Leaders podcast. It's the podcast for the dreamers, and more importantly, the doers. I'm your host, Melody. Today, we will go over an inspiring journey from a refugee to a multi-millionaire. Joining us here today is a uh, successful entrepreneur with several uh, ventures from a um, multi-line insurance agency to an e-commerce business to call centers in different um, in three different countries. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Theresa Wynne Muth. Hi, Theresa. Hi, Melody. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoy your program and I'm excited that I'm a part of it now. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, welcome. Um, if we could, um, if you could share with our audience your journey uh, on how it was, you know, being a refugee and maybe if you could take us back to the moment where your family decided to escape Vietnam. So the Vietnam War and the refugee, it's not a matter of you deciding. I don't think many of the refugees during that era get to decide. It was more um, and literally um, swim or sink, right, uh, type of situation. The fall of Vietnam came very quickly, even though my aunt worked for the U uh, U.S. government. And so they did know about the U.S. drawing out of Vietnam about a year in advance. So they did tell her, and because she worked for the U.S. government, they felt that her life could be in danger if they pulled out and Vietnam falls. So they did notify her that she was going to be taken out along with her children. And long story short, but over the course of a year, she started begging to bring some of us with her. Uh, my brother, my dad is her only brother. So she was, in her mind, it was to bring the eldest son, which is my brother, over, and hopefully with him being uh, coming with her, he would be able to help bring the rest of us eventually. But over the course of the year, and grateful to her to this day, she literally get on her, her knees and beg to bring our family over, and uh, she slowly worked it, and uh, so when it came time to evacuation, we were one of the fortunate ones that actually got evacuated and flew out on the hel helicopter three days before the fall of Vietnam. Three days before. And how many in your group? So my family, my immediate family was uh, four of us uh, siblings and then my parents and then my aunt's family. So that makes eight. And then luckily, even my grandmother also got to come along with as well. Do you remember that escape or that um that helicopter ride and then from there were you did you get stationed into like a different camps do you remember do you remember uh, that time very vividly because I was already nine years old so developed enough and it's funny whenever people ask me about it um, I still get very emotional um, and I can hear the sound of the the um, 
helicopter. And it wasn't really a helicopter. I'm not sure what it's called here, but it, it's a military um, one where, you know, it has the two twir twirling. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so even now talking to you. Like a I turbo can... prop plane, maybe. Yeah. And even now I can actually hear it. We were evacuated. And when we left, we were told cannot bring anything with us. Therefore, literally just the clothes on our back and whatever money that my parents and my aunt can put together. Um, and at nine years old, it was interesting because for me, I just grabbed a photo album with me. Um, I actually got heat for bringing it along. And that was ended up being the only thing we had of our childhood um, as far as remnant of what, what we had. Um, and we were helicoptered out to Guam went over there and stayed in the military camp for three days and, and heard the fall of Vietnam. So honestly, when we left, we thought we were coming back. We thought we were leaving just until things settled and come back. And when we heard the fall of Vietnam in Guam, I remember everybody broke down and cried because they knew they weren't going to see their family again. Mm -hmm. And for us, definitely it wasn't prepared. And, and we didn't know where our lives was going to be, where we would end up at. Um, and as a child, I don't think I worried as much as my parents, but you know, that, that concern was definitely in everybody's mind, knowing that you have no homes to go back to and you've lost pretty much your family, all of your family, as far as being able to see them again. So three days in Guam and then from there, did you have to go uh, elsewhere? Mm -hmm. Guam was only a temporary place. And um, during that era, I believe 250,000 refugees um, left Vietnam, some not as fortunate. And I, uh, I'm sure you recall many die at sea trying to find freedom. For us, we were in Guam for um, only about three days. No, I'm sorry, maybe about a month. And then we were um, flew over to United States and Camp Pendleton was where I ended up at for six months um, prior to being sponsored. So for families and friends uh, who tried to, do you know anyone um, amongst your close friends or, or relatives that tried to escape as well and weren't as successful? Many, many um, that, that I did know and many did escape and come over and have some pretty horror stories with pirates and things like that at sea that luckily they survived, but a lot of scars. So yes, during that period of time, we have a lot of connection as to people who did leave and never make it. And uh, people who went through some really rough time before making it here. And then those who are, I consider us fortunate as far as our evacuation, being able to come to the United States and for the most part um, with more of a happier experience. Mm -hmm. So so now in the United States, uh, how was it like uh, as a refugee in the first year of being in a brand new country? How was that like for your family? Well, I still remember because we were at Camp Patton, um June, July. It was freezing cold for us. Imagine coming from a country where temperature was, uh, you know, really high in the 90s with high humidity. And then you come over here. Um, and so I remember being a child, we were just so cold at camp that the military personnel would loan us their thick jacket. And I was walking around with the military jacket um, as, a, you know, just to keep warm. Um, we were living in, a in tents. So all of us were set up in tents. Um, for me, that experience was, uh, was actually um, a happier one 
very carefree. People came into camp. So America was very generous. People coming in, teaching us how to speak English. And I remember, um, you know, coming to tent and if Miss Mickey Hickey is still out there somewhere, her name is just like registered in my head because that was what I was taught. What is your name? My name is Mickey Hickey. And so to this day, I still remember that teacher's name. Um, people were donating um, clothes for us, um, teaching us how to live the American lives. Um, I am sure for my parents and, and you know, the adults, they were still very concerned because none of us spoke English at all. Um, and so just adjusting to that life was challenging than going from familiarity, even down to the food, um, you know, having fish sauce as your way of living and not having that. So we missed a lot of things and we were still very apprehensive and we were scared. Um, and within the three months of being sponsored and coming out and, and then having to, uh, to uh, get into the, the real life, that was also a huge challenge for my parents as well. So for my family, um, it, you know, as you would have expected, coming into a new country, you, no one in my family spoke English at all. Um, so it was, uh, I'm sure it was challenging for my parents. I'm sure they have a lot of worries and concern. I was nine years old and my siblings were younger than that. So we actually had a more carefree time. Uh, the U.S. government definitely treated us super, super well. And we were at Camp Pendleton where we were taken care of by Marine. Um, and so for my memories, it was um, sliding down, you know, mustard fields um, with my cardboard, having fun at camp, learning English, um, sneaking out from English classes to go play. Uh, but for my parents, it was a concern of how will we survive? How will we speak the language? How will we, we, we adapt to the um, new community that we're going to have to be, uh, to get used to? Mm -hmm. So it, um, it was a, a very big mix of emotion, mm -hmm. but we were grateful that we were one of the ones that got out and have the freedom. Mm -hmm. And um, so my parents just adapt to the new way of living. I remember it was being so cold and they were, um, they, they had a job, but they didn't have a car. So they would get up at 5 a.m. in the morning, bike to work, um, just to get there by seven o'clock in the morning and do the same thing at night, leaving us at home. So we would have to care for ourselves, uh, figuring out how um, to adapt to the new schools. Um, even <laughs> simple things like uh, adapting to the food over here uh, in United States or wearing the right clothes or doing the right thing in classes. Um, so it was a huge transformation as it would be for any refugee that comes into a new country. Mm -hmm. so, so with regards to earning that first dollar uh, for your family, do you remember what the jobs were and with regards to the language barrier, how, how did you uh, overcome um, those challenges? You know, um, so we were sponsored by the Catholic Church. And I, I do recall that conversation growing up is they took my parents uh, to a place and they started having my parents fill out some paperwork. And my dad basically started filling out the paperwork with their help. And then he, he asked them, he said, Why, what am I filling this out, this paperwork for through a translator? And they told him that it was for welfare. My dad stopped the paperwork and he said, no, I'm not here to take free money. I want to work. I'm not filling out this paperwork. I want to work. And no matter what they say to him, he wasn't going to take free money. 
Um, so he, instead, they took him home and they helped him um, get a job. Uh, my dad was in the military. Mom never worked a day in her life when we were in Vietnam. But dad also have a skill as a tailor. So he told the sponsors that and they went and they got him into a sewing factory with my mom and apply for work there. Um, so it was, you know, this is back in the 70s. So the work environment was very different too. But at least they got a job. They worked in a factory. And so every day they would bike to work. They would, you know, do an eight-hour day job and then bike home. And that's how they earned their first dollar in the United States. They really have come a long way. Uh, was it last year that... Um that you invited me to uh, your parents' house. Um, and it's almost, you know, ocean view, beautiful, beautiful home. So uh, that's a amazing testimony of, you know, starting from, from the bottom and whatever it takes to get to, to get to where you are now. So that's, uh, that's amazing. And uh, I think there's a saying about, you know, for, for each failure or adversity, there comes with it a seed of equal or, or greater benefit. So, um, so though you had to go through all that struggles, I mean, here you are now your whole family um, have, you know, gotten a lot of success in, in the careers that you guys um, have. Fast forward today, your, um, you have all your ventures, all successful. Can you share with our audience maybe um, tips that you feel are ways for one to be an effective leader? So to be an effective leader, I think the first thing that is important is compassion. Um, to be a leader, you have to be able to understand who works with you. And usually I like to say that works with you, not for you. I think that is really a key. Right. In my organization, without my staff, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, and even though I, I have more education, I have learned um, throughout the years to gain the experience. These people coming in, depending on how I um, treat them and how I lead them, they will be the success for my organization. So that compassion that I'm referring to is to understand who they are, understand what are their hot buttons. And what are the cold buttons even? Um, and being able to relate to that, appreciating them as different human beings and looking for their strengths as well as their weaknesses. So that leads me to the leadership style is that I actually lead based on people's strengths, not people's weaknesses. It's too hard to develop someone and try to get them out of the weaknesses. I'm not saying not to do that, but I think to get an organization to a speed where it can move faster is you find out what are their strengths. Because usually with strengths also comes with the passion. And so people thrive on, those, on their own strengths. And if you can find that and then you can fit it into your organization, I think that you can go places a lot faster. Um, and leading means courage meaning that you don't have to always have people liking you for what you think, for what you expect. Um, however, people come to work to be successful. And if having to compromise your um, direction so that the person like you sometimes, and a lot of leaders I find um, falls into that, 
then you fail to guide them to their success. And if that occur, then they will eventually become unhappy and dissatisfied as way. So the courage of actually leading, pulling people out of their comfort zone, challenging them, and even if that means that it, it's at a cost of them not liking you um, as to what you do, I think in the end, they will end up appreciating that. Um, and I can, you know, with my life experience, 28 years of having hundreds of employees working under me, um, I do believe that that works because out of everybody that ever worked for me, even the one that I let go, I can tell you positively to this day, many still remain, um, you know, good friends um, and come back and say that I have influenced their life. So I think that compassion and, and being fearless in leading them in the direction that they are uncomfortable with is very important. And to me, one of the things that is very, very critical is your integrity. So you deliver your promise. If you are going to say something, you're going to be doing it. I think that is very important in a leader. Um, I'm not saying that you have to be successful at everything that you do, but I think that you have to have the courage to be able to do your best in delivering your promise um, and never, never falter from it. And I think those, if you have those three, um, uh, if you have those three uh, characteristics, characteristic, thank you very much, um, then uh, you should be able to lead a very, very solid team. In 2018, um, there was a study that shows 75 million um, are women in uh, the workforce. So 47% of uh, the total American workforce are women. And yet, uh, majority of the parental role and household chores still kind of fall uh, on women, right? So how do you how do you juggle, you know, the that work life, you know, being able to be a mom, and still handle all those uh, multiple uh, ventures that you have successfully? It definitely is a challenge. And I have many women that comes to me and constantly ask me that question. Um, for me, number one is you always have to make sure that you have your priorities straight. If you choose to be a mom and you have children, hopefully you share the same philosophy as I do is that I did not have my children so that somebody else can raise them. So that has always been number one for me. When I had my firstborn, um, I actually had to compromise. I knew that if I, if I was the one who's doing the job, I would be much more effective. I would bring home a lot more money. And I knew that by hiring someone else to do those jobs, it will cost more. I would, I would have less to bring home. But that was why I've always said I would be working is for my family. And so because of that, I staffed up, I trained knowing that they are not as good as I am. Um, but I was okay with that. I was okay with that because I knew I have a very short period of time before my children will grow up and that life experience is going to be gone. I also know that if I am their foundation and if my foundation isn't solid, they will grow up to be human beings that are not solid as well. And so I had to compromise and I have always had to make sure I remind myself that they are the priorities. And to those children, and you ask any children how much money you make, what kind of clothes they wear, what kind of home they live in, it doesn't matter to them. But having the love of the parents and knowing that your parents are there and that they, when they fall, you pick them up 
when they have problems and challenges, you are there to guide them. That is going to be the most important things in their life. So that is the, the first thing is get your priorities straight. And if you have children, somewhere in your equation, that has to be the number one priority. Mm-hmm. Second concept is time management. This one is fun. And uh, in fact, I am uh, with so many women coming forward. It is something that I'm working on, um, on my segments as well in terms of helping women. So I'll share with you, we are so limited with time, right? I mean, 24 hours a day, even if you don't sleep that much, you still don't have enough. Um, so I have to get creative. For example, in the morning, if I get up and I, I work out, I'll tell you, I just uh, finished my CHFC, which is a huge accomplishment in the financial service world. And I did it with why I'm working out and how I'm driving to work. That's the only time I have. So guess what? I'm working out and I'm turning on my online courses. I'm driving, I'm turning it on. And then I allow myself one day a week where I spent a few hours to review the materials. And I actually went through this full course, but that's all I got. So that's, I get creative with it. Women ask me all the time, makeup, you know, do you, how long does it take you to do makeup? First of all, I don't have that luxury. So 15 minutes is the most, but honestly, I put on my foundation first. I do the lines because you can't do that in the car and the rest of it at red lights. I hope I won't get in trouble for saying that, but you know what? That's what a lot of women can relate to that. So number one is uh, prioritizing. Number two is time management. Is there a third one, Theresa? Absolutely. Marketing with your resources. So we're in business. And I think for most business, um, there is always opportunity no matter where you go. So for me, I want to be involved in my children's life. And instead of having to carve time out for marketing, guess what? Mom's PTA meeting. Hey, moms, <laughs> I'm here to help with your PTA event. And by the way, um, have you done that 529 for your children yet? Right? right. And it's fun. And actually, it's resourceful. These people do need the help and nobody, you know, their, their life is wrapped up. But they why I'm working with them on a project at school, we have these conversations. So I also bring awareness to my business at the same time. And it's fun because guess what? You share the same interests, you share the same passion. So you also um um, connect and have that relationship as well. So some, a lot of those moms became my client as well as became my friends, right? So networking, utilizing your resources at all time, even when you're working, nothing wrong with that at all. And I, th- I think that those are the three things that you can keep in mind that you can fit into your day somehow as being a mom and a uh, business owner. I like it. I like it. It's crisscrossing, right? It's double dipping. Mm-hmm. Might as well, you know, um, here in my office, I say the three magic words are by the way, by the way, I'll help you save money on your auto insurance. Or um, by the way, do you need a virtual assistant that's kind of where you have uh, your call center or what have you. So it's, um, it's double dipping or weaving, weaving your uh, activities. And, uh, and why not, right? That's all part of the flow of the conversation. It doesn't have to be a hard sell. It's just really kind of being genuine about what you do, right? Yes, While doing- Depending on what business you are in, like the business I am in, that is important. These resources are important. And the same thing is that these moms are too busy too. 
And so to have professionals that are working side by side and giving you concepts and ideas, you know, talking to them about their children's education, talking to them about their retirement planning, especially mom who stays at home. Those are all the things that maybe they don't think about and worry about. But by the time their kids are grown, years has gone by and opportunities are missed. So depending on what you do for a living, I do believe that whatever resources you can provide is also a huge benefit to the people that you are sitting next to as well. One thing that um, I think it's important to let the audience know is um, is how you've you've gotten to where you are is consistency. I've seen and witnessed and, and looked at uh, reports where where now you're part of the um, Lifetime Presence Club uh, qualifier for a Fortune 39 uh, or Fortune 36. I don't know anymore. You know, it's a moving <laughs> target, but definitely a Fortune 500 company. Being a Lifetime Presence Club qualifier means that you have to do so many things consistently year after year to get to that lifetime uh, place. And also the... Um, lifetime uh, uh, qualifier for the million dollar round table, which uh, for a lot of the insurance professional globally, that's the, the gold standard for what is considered uh, the pinnacle of, uh, of success, right? Um, so let's talk about consistency. What, what do you think you do to make sure that you have that consistent activity that gives you the, the consistent um, result? that you produce year after year? System, right? System um, and management. That is very, very important. I think that everything can be broken down to to bite size. And then once you put the system in place, then obviously accountability as well. So if we're talking about business specifically, I can tell you, um, let's say I want to be number one in the company. If that's what I want to do, I have to understand what it takes. I have to look at the people that's already sitting in that position and what it is that they have accomplished to be there. And then I have to break it down to what would it take to get there? Once I figure that out, then the next step would be, is it something I want to do? And is it something I'm willing to sacrifice other things to get there? I like that. If it is something that's really important to you and that is something you determine that you will get there, then go to work at it. And I'm and you should never be in a situation where you said, I got to put all of this in in one shot because that that is the, the ticket for failure. You have to break it down to bite size. So for me, let's say I've decided that I was going to be presence club. OK, presence club. Uh, what does it take? It takes you to be number one, number uh, top 50 in the country for a specific product, auto fire life health, for example, in my industry. So what president's club do I want? Let's say that I feel like my strength is, is life and that's what I wanted to do. Then that's what I would focus on. And that's what I would develop my marketing program around, around. That's what I train my team members to do. And that's what I select the team members to do that in. Then I would work with them to, make, to get them into that system, their marketing system, my marketing system right? What development do do I need? What accountability do they have to me in order to get there? And what is that accountability? So once you break all of that down, it would be easier to execute. And you would execute, I call it a seven system. So then during that very first month that you start execution, you should have a, a plan that have at least seven different things that you're going to be doing. 
but then you will break it down and you start to implement maybe the first or the second in the first month. Then come the next month after that, that first system is in place, you start to implement the second one. So it may take a little bit of time for you to get there, but then it becomes solid. And that's what you refer to as consistency, because once the system is in place and the team knows how to do that, they don't usually go backward. And if it does go backward for some reason, that means that there's something faulty in that system and you reinvent it again until it becomes a consistency. Does that make sense? I, I actually like also the part where uh, it's almost like reverse engineering uh, what, um, what it takes, knowing, knowing what you want. What does it take to get there and kind of going backwards and, and putting up uh, the plan uh, in place, your game plan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's really important, Melody, is a lot of small business owners, the biggest mistake is that they feel that they have to be the one who does all of that. And for me, I believe my success is developing managers who can execute each of those steps for you as necessary. So for example, earlier in my career, when I have little resources, I didn't make that much money and I only have so much in my budget, I can only afford two or three team members. But as time goes on and I have more money to hire more people, I start to develop people. So it went from me wearing the hats of everything to me being the manager and I oversee and I am the one who create the dream. And then I would have human resources. Then I would have trainers. Then I would have sales team, sales manager, and I would have operation managers. And then I would train them so that they would be able to take on that job. And then while you're training them, you also need to train, train people who can take over their positions as well. Because in our world, turnover happens all the time. So you always have backup plan and you're always prepared for your organization never to be um, at a standstill because one of the function doesn't have a backup plan. Mm. So how, how do you tie your, because uh, you have several businesses, right? And each businesses would have uh, each own uh, team. So how do you make all these cohesive and how do you oversee all that to make sure that all um, all the pieces in the organization are working? How do you oversee all that? So each of those business entities are definitely separated from each other. Um, in the security business, you can't be affiliating this organization with any other business that you are doing as well. Um, and so it, it, they are completely different entities they have completely different teams and different staff. And each of them answers to you differently depending on the type of business that you are in. Um, But in each of the organization, I have my key person. So the key person would act like me. They have the authority to make certain decisions and that's that's training in progress all the time, right? Um, And it takes a long time for me to develop that person. For me personally, integrity is the most important thing. Work ethic, integrity. Obviously you have to have skills and ability, but I can train that. I can't train ethics, I can't train integrity. So that's what I look for when I hire people. Then they move up through the rank and because they've been with me for enough time, they actually understand me and they understand my expectation. Once I put them in that position, I also trust them to be able to do their job. And if they make the wrong decision, I'm gonna be okay with that. That's part of the cost of operation. Um, So each of the organization that um, that I own, they have those, I have those resources and those managers, then they answers to me. 
and I have my bottom line. Here's my expectation. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you execute it. And if it doesn't meet that goal, then tell me why. And then I work with them to help develop them so that they can make sure that they reach those goals. Mm-hmm. I remember, I think it was uh, Warren Buffett that has that three, uh, three things that, um, that when he hires, it's, it's number one, having the intellect. Number two, having um, the, the intensity or the chemistry or the energy to the passion to want to do what, what the task is that needs to be done. And third is integrity. And amongst the three, it, it truly is the, the integrity or the character that you can't, you can't compromise. Looking back to, to all the ups and downs, is there anything that you would do different, Theresa? I don't know. I mean, if you're sitting in this chair today looking back and, and you said, I would do this or that different, how would you do it different if you never had that experience to know, right? So I don't necessarily believe that it would be um, anything that I would do different. And it's funny because many times people would ask me similar questions like, what, is there anything you regret in life? Um, no, no, life is a journey. And if there's anything that I can share with the audience out there is that in that journey, you have to have everything. And if you don't, it wouldn't form you into who you are today. And I'm sure that that's an old cliche that you hear it all the time, but it is so true. Um, With all of those experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, I've learned. And because of all of that, then that's how I become as good as I am. But it's not over. There's still a lot of mistakes to be made and a lot of knowledge to be learned. And, And as I go through all of that, I will continue to develop as a human being. And I embrace all of that. Now, some of that can be super, super painful. Looking back, that still can bring tears to your eyes. But if it wasn't for that, would you be as strong, as experienced, as knowledgeable, um, and as successful as you become, right? Um, and that is something that, that I think only life can hand you, and you have to go through it in order to be able to be the best that you can be if you so choose to be. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's a very good um a good piece of advice to leave our audience. Uh, so, Teresa, I know that um, that you have another appointment you know, after this, but um, you know the inspiring stories, the journeys, all the tips and advices that you shared; those are all really valuable. And uh, I'm sure, um, as they say, all it takes is just one. If there's just one uh, nugget that one could use and implement, and could make a difference uh, to someone, then um, then that's a pretty good uh, use of uh, of our time together, right, that's Teresa? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, so again, thank you and uh, wishing you continued success. And for all the dreamers out there, keep believing. You got this. Till next time. <laughs>